Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Fashion College. Great pleasure to welcome you to the final MA lecture. Usually when you say something is the final thing in the series, there's a, there's a tinge of sadness. But in fact, tonight we're going to turn this into a celebration. This is a really important occasion for, for the college. And that's because the MA lectures have been an extremely important annual almost annual event at GTC since 1997. They've brought to the college some of the most preeminent researchers from around the world and from the UK. Michel Fardo, Michael Patton, um, my predecessor Lord Walton also gave one of the lectures uh, in, in the series. They've been under the broad heading of, of paediatric disease, but the lectures were founded and have been maintained by uh, Alan Emery's generosity in donating the royalties and um, other benefits from his book, Muscular Dystrophy, The Facts, to the college and through the college to this series. That book was first published in 1994. It's been translated into, into several languages, I think four of the last count, and it continues to be a, a very important reference point for families of young people who suffer from muscular um, dystrophy. As I said, Alan has generously donated um, the royalties uh, throughout the years to support the lecture. Now that the internet has rather taken over um, publication and the material is all available there, there are very few conventional royalties still coming in, but they do still come in occasionally. And Alan has given us a further generous donation in that any further royalties will actually again come to the college that will be dedicated to the purchase of books for the medical section of the, of the college library. So many thanks to you, um, Alan, for that. Alan, as I think almost everybody here knows, is an emeritus professor of human genetics at the University of Edinburgh. But he's also been a research fellow here uh, and subsequently um, um, emeritus fellow here at Green Temple and College since 1989. He's had an immensely distinguished career in neuromuscular um, uh, disorders. And um, I, I won't run through all the prizes and accolades that he's um, received. I would like to just mention a couple of things, though, that he was the first researcher to delineate an important disease in this suite, which is now known as the Emery-Dreyfus uh, muscular dystrophy. And there is, from, from that work, there is a protein which is called Emery which is actually named in his honor. So if Emerin comes up on University Challenge, it is not a shampoo. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a protein named in, in honor of our colleague, um, um, Alan Emerin. Um, tonight, Alan is going to um, move slightly sideways from this um, broad area of, 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 of neuromuscular disease and give his final lecture on the title that's here the doctor-patient relationship from ancient Greece to the present day. As everybody know, who knows Alan will also know, he's a great supporter, and he and Marsha are great supporters of, of, of the arts, and he is a scholar in the humanities as well. And Alan has, has spoken to many audiences on this and related topics. His talk tonight, however, builds very much on the methodology and the philosophy of a very important um, uh, literary work, which I, I have always found um, struck an immense chord with doctors and doctors in training, and that is John Berger's book, Ways of Seeing. And um, 
in tune with an important series of, of lectures and seminars that we've run in the college for the last two sessions on medicine and literature. You will notice that we have branded the evening's lecture as part of that series as well, and we're delighted that, that Alan is contributing in that way. So would you please now welcome Professor Alan Emery for the final Emory lecture on the doctor-patient relationship in art. Well, Prince Law, Sir David, ladies and gentlemen, actually it's quite touching to look at the audience and see how many people I recognise. Students as well, as well as very senior clinicians and so on. And I'm really touched that you came along. Um, I misinterpreted the advertisement a few weeks ago because I thought you said the last lecture by Alan Emery. <laughs> <laughs> and this worried me a little bit. <laughs> I feel all right so far. Anyway, <laughs> and I told a colleague of mine at a meeting in London last week, a Canadian, and he sent me this poem because I told him what I was going to talk about. And it's 1600s. It's a novel. We don't know who wrote it. And it says, and it reflects the philosophy behind what I'm going to talk about. The God and Doctor, <clears throat> we alike adore, but only in trouble, not before. <laughs> the trouble over, both are requited. God is forgotten, and the doctor slighted. <laughs> now, I think you'll find what I want to do in this lecture is illustrate how there has been this cyclical variation in the doctor-patient <clears throat> relationship, that when you've got a good diagnosis and treatment, his status or her status goes right up. But then, when they find their problems, it goes right down. And I hope I'll be able to illustrate that. And as Sir David said, I'm a great fan of John Berger, the one who writes about art history and so on, and some of you will have seen him on television. He wrote this, No other kind of relic or text from the past can offer such a direct testimony about the world which surrounded other people at other times than paintings. And it's true. If you think about it, somebody describes an amputation without anaesthetic. Sounds pretty grueling, but if you saw a painting done at the time, it's much more convincing. So that's why I've chosen to do this through works of art. Well, let's begin at the beginning. Let's see if this works. Where do I PowerPoint? Oh, there we go. Um, this, of course, is um, Asclepius, the uh, god of um, welfare and medicine and so on. Uh, he's still worshipped by some people still, but really this was at the classical period of ancient Greece. And you'll see he's got here a uh, a staff with a snake around it. And that has become the image for all medicine and surgery throughout the world. Why a snake? Well, we don't know really, but we suspect it's because uh, snakes may never die. At least that's the impression, because they cast their skin. And Asclepius, it was purely a myth. He was the son of Apollo by a very beautiful woman called Cronus, and then suspected her of being unfaithful, like you do. And um, so he took the baby and had it brought up by Chiron, half man, half horse. And on the tie of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, Chiron is the image there. Anyway, that was Asclepius. And every year, Marsha and I, and a group of us, go looking at ancient monuments in Greece. It's about 12 of us. And we go for two or three weeks at a time. And this is the Tepidaris, which some of you will have been to. And this is the temple of Asclepius. 
And the idea was that people would go into the abaton, which is the range of it here, and tell the priest what was wrong with them. <coughs> I think I have a drop of water there. It's free, is it? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> In this college, they don't be so take it all back. <laughs> And they, and they would tell the priest what was wrong with them, and the priest would give them advice, then they'd sleep there, thank the priest the following morning, and then they'd feel much better. But of course, this was total mythology. But it stuck out for a very long time. But of course, re replaced in the 5th century BC uh, by Hippocrates. Now, we all know about Hippocrates, but we don't know what he looked like. And uh, this is from a Victorian engraving, there was a Royal Society of Medicines exhibition a couple of years ago, but uh, this is just imagination. We don't know what he looked like. But he was quite unique uh, because he brought in the idea, how can we understand diseases? And he introduced the concept of humours, and things like yellow bile, black bile, blood and phlegm, it was these going wrong that did it all. Uh, but it was due to either nutrition or the weather or whatever. Now, these theories are really... No, don't stand up now. But at least he was trying to make an attempt to understand what diseases uh, were caused by. And uh, we have several pictures of... Oh, wait, what's happening now? Oh, no, sorry, one thing. Um, this is actually in the library here at the college. Uh, it's um, taken from a sarcophagus in Athens. shows you a doctor at the time uh, examining a patient... And there's a Greek inscription at the bottom which has been translated. So when you go in the library here, you'll see it's there on the wall with the translation. Obviously, doctors were now quite respected and were treated uh, with respect. But perhaps the most important thing for many of us now in the West is that they introduced uh, the oath, the orkos. And uh, I've just got a, a little bit taken from the published 30 or 40 books. We don't know how many he actually wrote. But, and there may be as many as 50 or 60, we don't know. But running through them is this philosophy of the oath. And so it begins, I swear by Apollo. And many students in Britain used to take this. I don't know if they still do in Oxford. Uh, and they don't in the medical school. I was at Manchester. Don't say where it's that. It's, it's another medical school. But we used to take the oath. And it starts off with, I will only treat according to my ability and judgment. Mm, that's what I'm thinking about. How many doctors are, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, well, there we go. They never give a lethal drug, of course. You must practice your life in purity and holiness. Abstain from any intentional injustice or harm to your patients and their relatives. Here's the most important thing. And I may see or hear in the course of treatment, whatever, I should treat in confidence. Now, we've kept those things ever since. They're the basis of medicine, and they've never really changed. And though we don't have a, a, a picture of um, Hippocrates, the certain, this is the one closest to it, I think. And this is from a, a jar, uh, a red figure painting, as they call it, in the 5th and 6th century. And this is uh, in the Louvre, and it shows you a doctor, uh, perhaps taking blood off a patient. Uh, I discovered when we were in Naples last year in the Archaeological Museum, this thing tucked away. These are all the artefacts that were found when um, Pompeii blew up 
and uh, just, uh, Vesuvius blew up and Pompeii was destroyed and they found this uh, artifact in the remains and this of course was AD 79 so people were still perhaps worshipping or respecting Asclepius then even though the rest of the world was taking off with Hippocrates and Hippocratic medicine was to remain with us a very very long time um, this is a, 11, a 12th century manuscript from the British Museum of a doctor treating a patient. Nobody looks very happy, do they? It's not encouraging to do medicine. But anyway, you can see the... the oh, crikey. What's it Technology. Um, this, you see, he's treating the patient and giving him some sort of herbs or so on. And uh, as I say, this was the 12th century. And it was the 12th century when medical schools were being founded. Uh, I've written them down here, we don't need to go into it now, but it was Salerno, Paris, Bologna, and Oxford. And Oxford had a medical uh, training centre here in 1167. It was certainly the first in Western, in our part of Europe. Um, and this is another manuscript, uh, also from the British Museum. There are a lot more pictures on this than the ones I've chosen. Uh, there are three, four scenes here. Uh, here is probably a doctor. Uh, he's, he's vomiting the patient, this one's falling over with epilepsy, this one's got headaches, and I don't know what's wrong with this one. But I don't want to draw your attention to that. I'd like to draw your attention to the doctors. He's very well dressed with a hat on. They're all university trained, but not this guy. He's a surgeon, and that's why we call him Mr. They were never university trained. Are there any surgeons here? Dare raise the hand. Oh, there is one, a very famous one, yes. And it's funny that we've kept this term Mr. ever since in Britain, but of course not in America and elsewhere. But as I mentioned um, at the beginning, there was nothing really we could do about treatment and diagnosis except these Hippocratic ideas. But a major part was played by the church, and this is by, it's called the Seven. Uh, racks of charity by the Master of Alkmaar, which is 15th century, a Flemish painter. And you can see here everything they're doing. They're caring for a patient in bed here, uh, another one being cared for here. In fact, oh, there's somebody here who's perhaps died. The church played a very, very large part <coughs> in medicine for two reasons, I think. First of all, of course, by definition, and when I say churches, I also mean uh, the Islamic Church as well as Judaism. They all did the same thing. They all provided facilities to care for the sick. And secondly, of course, the administrators, administrators of this were usually educated so could read and write. So they were able to read the Hippocratic uh, manuscripts and so on and benefit from it. And when I was a medical student in the 50s, I went to medical school after military service and a bit different from the ones around me who go straight from school. And in the fourth year or fifth year, we're allowed to take up a, se a seminar, a semester, to go somewhere. And lots of my colleagues decided to go to America because the weather was nice and they could see themselves in Miami and places like that. And I went to Germany because I wanted to do neurology. And as you remember, Germany was very famous for neurology before the war. But this was a hospital I worked in in Würzburg was um, run by nuns. And um, I, one day, I, a nun was sitting by the bed with a patient and I had to put a drip up. And then I said, would you check <coughs> that it doesn't stop and I'll come back in the morning? She said, okay. And I went back in the morning and she was still sitting there. Now that dedication, you rarely find. 
Uh, and I've always been, I'm not a very religious person, don't misunderstand me. But the church has, and as I say, the other religious groups as well, have played a very large part in maintaining the status of medicine. Um, but um, not everything was quite going right. We're now in the 15th century, as I mentioned, and this is a painting called The Deathbed Scene from the House of Catherine of Cleves. And here, if you look at this, it's very odd. This poor old chap has died. There's his wife grieving, and perhaps this is a religious lady with a cross, you see, and there's somebody else perhaps reading the Bible here and so on. These two chaps, because they're discussing how much is left of them, but we don't know. <laughs> but look at the doctor. What's he doing? He's looking at urine. They could only take pulses and look at urine. And people begin to say, well, what's that got to do with it? Right? I did tell you at the beginning, I'm convinced, that it's works of art that tell you the story. And this, of course, is wonderful. You all know the Dutch artist Jan Steen, and this is one of them, the doctor's visit. I think he did 18 of these over the period he was working in the 1630s or so. And it's just called the doctor's visit. So you can say, oh, isn't that nice? He's taking a pulse, he looks very well dressed, and all oh, you know, the urine and so on. If you look more carefully, I don't know if you can see at the back, there's a painting here, which is Venus and Adonis. Ah. And then it, the, the boy here looks like, well, what's he doing with a bow and arrow? Is he playing with it, or is it a, a metaphor for something else? And then there's this little box here, it has straw in it. And there was a test at that time in the Dutch school, <coughs> that if you burnt feathers or something like this to a young lady, and she got very nauseous, then she was probably pregnant. Well, you say, oh, and probably this chap is her husband who's being a cold We don't know. But lots been written about these, and he did it, as I say, many times. In other words, people were beginning to question the status of medicine. They couldn't do much. They could look at the urine, take the pulse, and that was about it. Now, there was a very famous doctor here in Oxford at the time. This is where they were running out of the college now, I'm sure. Um, and you may have read Roy Porter's book, Body's Politics. If you haven't, you should. It's absolutely wonderful. And he does put a bit about this chap called Radcliffe. You may have heard of him. Have you heard of Radcliffe? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, he was a, a very, very wealthy uh, clinician in the 17th century, 18th century. And I'll quote, on his arrival in London, he hired half the porters in town to call for him at all the coffee houses so as to get his name about. <laughs> yeah? The ruse apparently worked, I'm quoting, in a quote here, the ruse apparently worked because Radcliffe's fame and fortune spread. In due course, he could swagger around in his coach and six and a scutcheon on the side, accompanied by a running footman, corroborating the contemporary jingle, the carriage marks the peer's degree and almost tells the doctor's fee. <laughs> yes, well, of course he did, he was generous, don't misunderstand me. But this was medicine then. They were making a lot of money and they weren't really doing anything. And I have another quotation here, a more serious one, from Sir Richard Blackmore, some of you may have heard, he's president of the College of Physicians, in 1725, and he quote from his, not his book is that this useful and important art should have improved so little in so many centuries we discovered few remedies of any value and no cures. 
Now, you see, now the prestige of the doctor is disappearing. Yes, he's making lots of money, but those are people who don't realise what's happening. But then things really did change. And at the beginning, at the end of the 18th century, 1796, we had perhaps one of the most incredible changes there was. Jenner's introduction of vaccination for smallpox. And this is the experiment. I've used a French artist here, Georges Mélange. You may have heard of him. The reason I chose him is because the French really pursued this. When this worked, uh, uh, Napoleon, who's not one of my famous people, but Napoleon got all his soldiers vaccinated, the church was for it, and so on. In Britain, it was totally different. Oh, we don't want it, you know. It, it could turn us all into frogs or something, because we're very slow to take up things. But this is him doing this... Uh, experiment, there's a little girl with uh, cowpox, and he's taken the material from there, injecting it into the boy called Phipps, and uh, then, after six weeks, you can't imagine this now, he injected smallpox into the kid and showed he didn't get it. I mean, can you imagine doing that now? The ethical people, be <laughs> you know? And so it did work, and I, and of course, you know, this has been going on ever since, and since 1980, there have no, been no cases of smallpox in the world. It's been totally so this was the first major change there was. The second one was about the same time, and this was in 1799, when the first president of the United States, George Washington, uh, had a cold. And he's quite fit otherwise, he had lousy teeth, you might probably know all about that. But otherwise, he was very, very fit and he got a bad cold, went to bed, and the doctors trained him three times. That would be so three or six pints of blood. And the guy died of loss of blood. They couldn't do anything else except take blood. And so from that point on, that was the end of any section. People were not going to do it anymore. So that was another major uh, one. But the, perhaps the best from our point of view is our great leader, Florence Nightingale. And uh, this picture, when you go to the... Some of you must have done this, because the British Library, if you go to the uh, portrait gallery, these come up in the screen. And you press a button, and they'll print you, print them for you. Really, a wonderful thing. And this is her here, uh, who is uh, our leader now. She went to Scutari uh, during the Crimean War, right at the very beginning in 1854. And uh, this is a painting by a chap called Jerry Barrett. And Jerry's up here, put himself in. But all the people here are identifiable. And uh, what she found was, when she went into hospitals, um, the mortality was over 50%. Um, largely infections, uh, malnutrition, Lord knows what. And because she introduced proper nursing care and proper food and uh, got rid of the infections by cleanliness and so on, it fell to 2%. Now that must have been going on all the time. And some of you would have read War and Peace. It's one of my favourite novels of all time. I've read it many times. And some of you will remember that in War and Peace uh, there's this uh, very famous battle I won't bore you the details, but uh, the famous battle, and there's two or three pages uh, showing that this battle of Borodino, uh, the conditions were appalling, absolutely appalling. So that was known to everybody, but nobody bothered until Florence Nightingale went there and checked. And there was another lady with a Mary Seacole <coughs> who came from the Caribbean. You may have heard about her too, Mary Seacole. And... Um, uh, well, anyway, whatever. So now things were beginning to change. Oh, and of course, this is the time when our great hero, John Snow, took off the handle of the Broad Street pump in London, Soho, and stopped an outbreak 
uh, of cholera. So now pe they didn't know what cholera was, of course, but they knew it was contaminated drinking water. Now things were really beginning to change. And this next picture is another of my favourites. Um, uh, it's by Wright of Derby, and it's called Experiment <coughs> in a Bird in the Air Pump. And uh, if you look, you see, um, I keep wanting to point here, it's no relevance. Um, they've taken, they've had a, a little jar here with a bird in it, and then when the air's been taken out of it, the, uh, the little bird passes out, and then when the little boy here pulls it again, it comes up, the air comes in, the little bird recovers. And here's, here's the chap demonstrating the experiment. Here's Daddy explaining to his two daughters. One is fascinated by it, the other is very upset, as you expect. Two men here are obviously concerned about the implications of all this. And anybody who's taught medical students knows there's always a couple there sitting at the back. Here they are, very attractive. <laughs> They're not slightly interested in the experiment at all. <laughs> this is a wonderful painting, and uh, it illustrates the changes that were now beginning to occur, and people were beginning to think seriously about science, the science. Science wasn't used as a term until 1840 at all, and now it's beginning. And, oh crikey, sorry. And then there were many discoveries, one after the other. Now, this isn't, this isn't in a co contemporary painting, um, but it's by a chap called John Board, who painted this in 1910. But this actually occurred in 1816, and you all recognise it. Uh, this is the London. Gosh, my, my voice is going. Uh, this is Lenek and his discovery of the stethoscope. Just a rolled piece of paper that he could put against the patient's chest and listen to the heart and lungs. He's in a hospital again with nurses, you see. And uh, he himself died a few years later of TB. But this was a major breakthrough. It's so obvious, isn't it, if you think about it? But nobody had. And this was in 1816. And I've written down here other inventions and discoveries that occurred just around this time. In 1847, the ophthalmoscope was discovered, invented. The laryngoscope in 1854. The thermometer in 1870, the portable one. And x-rays in 1895. Quite an incredible 50 period where all these changes were occurring. You could now start to diagnose diseases properly. And I have to make a... Um, a special mention of uh, my wife and I have a special hero in our lives it's Edward Merrion uh, and let me explain yeah, I see you dropping off asleep now uh, yes, Kate, this is your subject now <laughs> uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy it's the second most common genetic disorder in the West it affects about 1 in 3,000 boys and um, they perfectly normal at birth but by the age of about five or six they have problems keeping up with their peers. By 10 they go into a wheelchair and then the paths are all dead by 18 or 20. A terrible disease. And um, it's called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But this is wrong because Duchenne described as many diseases as years after this disease and he got the wrong end of the stick. He thought it was something to do with the nervous system, which it isn't. Let me tell you about Edward Marion. Edward Marion published a paper, 12 pages only. Now, you know what papers are like now in the scientific literature. You have about 50 authors, and it runs to hundreds of pages, and none of it you can understand. Sorry, okay, some of you. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but this was 12 pages. He showed, first of all, the clinical pictures, and he described this in a number of patients. Secondly, the grounded families. Only affected boys, and was inherited through their mothers. Don't forget, he didn't know anything about genetics. Um, 
He also looked at, oh, and to explain whether it was muscle or nerve, because most thought, things were thought to be nervous in origin. Nobody really described a muscle disease, it was all nerve. He looked at the spinal cord of a boy of 18 who died with the disease and compared it with the spinal cord of a boy of 18 who'd been um, kicked to death in a market in London by a horse, and the two were exactly the same, so it wasn't a nervous disease. And then he went on to look at the histology of the muscle and showed the sarcolemma, the skin of the muscle had broken down, and we, didn't, we, weren't, we weren't able to confirm that until 1987. So he really was, and 12 pages, that was all. Quite incredible man, Edward Mayer. I must say a little story, though, about this sign. We've got this put on these walls. Now, if you want to put a plaque up, you probably know this, but it's quite difficult. I didn't realise it. We, we did a lot of research. You have to write to the council, write to the mayor. Um, we have a mayor in the audience, so I don't be careful what I say. But um, you write to the mayor and the council, and you explain what it is you want to do and why. And then I was taking a picture of his house where he lived, which was on uh, uh, in... Excuse me. Uh, in um, uh, oh gosh, I forgot the name. Piccadilly. Huh? Piccadilly. Oh yeah, uh, Clarges. Street top Piccadilly. What would I do without you? You should give it to me. Yeah. And uh, so I'm taking a photograph, and I'm very anxious about this. And a chap comes running out of the house, and he looked like a, a colonel in the army. And I'm always terrified of military people. And he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Oh, we want to put a plaque on the house here, sir." He's, Famous person, not a, another bloody poet or a politician. I said, no, sir, he's a doctor. Oh, a doctor. So anyway, <laughs> we got the sign put up, and that's Edward Merrion. And his little book that Marsh and I wrote here in the college is down there. The other great breakthrough at this time, 1846, that was 1851, 18, it must have been a, a very, very exciting time for medicine, was the first use of anaesthetics in surgery. It's, it's really difficult to imagine what surgery must have been like before we had anaesthetics. It's, it, you can't imagine it. <coughs> and this is not a contemporary painting. This is done in 1882 by an American artist called Robert Hinckley. But it shows the first successful demonstration of surgical anesthesia being used by a man called Morton and using ether. Here he is with his little jar with ether, and it worked. I mean, you can't imagine that now, can you? It's like as if somebody came in with breast cancer and you touched them with a magical stick and it had gone. And I've got a, a little quotation from his wife's diary at the time, and it's very touching if you think about it. Um, she says this, The night before the operation, my husband worked until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning upon his inhaler. I assisted him nearly beside myself with anxiety, for the strongest influences had been brought to bear upon me to dissuade him from making this attempt. I'd been told one of two things could happen. Either the test would fail and my husband's career would be ruined and he'd be ridiculed, or he would kill a patient and he'd be tried for manslaughter. Thus I was drawn in two ways. For while I had unbound confidence in my husband, it did not seem possible that so young a man could be wiser and more learned than the scientific men around it. Quite incredible if you think about it. And uh, these, these discoveries really are quite something. And then that year, I don't know how they got the message from America, maybe it was uh, Cutty Sark or something, I don't know. And it got to London, 
and this is a very famous uh, surgeon in London at the time, Robert Liston. And you wonder why I've done this, this painting. Well, Marsh and I found this, and uh, at the welcome, it's a black and white print of Liston operating the first time with the use of our ether. And um, on the back of it, it says the original painting has been destroyed as being inaccurate. We've never identified who painted it. We don't know why. But it's certainly true that, that Liston did do this. And that was ether. For the next year, it was this chap in Edinburgh, uh, James Simpson, and this is a painting by Norwood Macbeth, uh, an RSA. Uh, he introduced chloroform. Now, this had the great advantage because ether caused irritation to the lungs. Chloroform didn't. And so this caught on and replaced ether. And, of course, since uh, Queen Victoria used it for the birth of her youngest son, Leopold, then it really caught on, and that was it. And we've never looked back since. Because now medicine and surgery's got quite a lot to offer, there's a lot to teach. And all I'm going to just talk about the four humours, and that's it. And we can take a little look at the urine. No, now you can do a lot. And this is another favourite painting of mine, and it's called The Clinical Lesson of the Solpetriae by Brulé. And this man here, we all recognise the Chaco. He drew his patients as well. I saw the book not long ago, um, of all his drawings. It's really incredible. And he made an effort with all these young men here to do their training so they could make diagnoses. And several of these are identifiable. This is Babinski. What's Babinski? Never mind. This is Babinski here. And this is De La Tourette. Um, and you know Tourette syndrome. Hands up those who don't know Tourette. Never mind. Anyway, and uh, so clearly, I mean, and Shark was a very, very famous man at the time. He's teaching there at the Salpetriere. This is also a teaching session, Doctor Teaching on a Sick Child at the New York Polyclinic by Irvin Wiles in 1891. Well, he's not known much, but I chose this because it illustrates something quite different. If you look carefully here, there are several girls in the audience. Ah, you see? And so we did a bit of research, and there had been odd women admitted with medical qualifications because they avoided the examiners and so on, but it wasn't official. It was established that women would be admitted to medical schools in Edinburgh in 1889 and in London in 1980, and we never looked back again after that, because women now play a very large part in medicine. So at that period, the Victorian period, there was a great deal of excitement and, and doctors had a great status. How can you show that in art? Well, this is called Playing at Doctors by Fred Davis Hardy, 1863. Um, I don't think most kids play doctors now, do they? But anyway, here you are, they're all playing here, and uh, here's the boy taking the pulse, they're mixing medicines, and here's Grandma and Mummy saying, ah, these little things. They wouldn't do this unless they had great respect for medicine. Uh, would we do it now? Oh, that's not a question I want to go into. But you can see that things were changing. Yes, but were they? Now we come back to this other problem again. Diagnosis. And this is The Doctor by Sir Luke Fildes, another of my very much like painting, 1891. And uh, Luke Fildes, when he painted this, he went down to Devon um, to a fisherman's cottage and got the idea of the various materials and took some back to him to London to his studio and painted it. Little girl here lying here, she's asleep. 
they've tried medicines, and but doesn't seem to be working. Here's the fisherman. You can't really see it, can you? His wife's asleep here. Dawn's coming up. He's asking himself, <coughs> what do I do? Have you, those of you in the audience who've been doctors know this very well. You don't like to let the patient know you don't know, but it's going through your mind. How can I treat this patient? What can I do next, especially with children? Uh, at the time, this was thought to be a little bit sympathetic and silly, but it wasn't, because Luke Fildes has loved his own son just a year before Christmas, so he was with, a, with his background was there. And also, he'd been brought up by his grandmother, and uh, we'd been at Peterloo in 1819. And if you remember, that was when they brought the colonels in, and um, people were, weren't rioting, but they were protesting, and the cavalry charged them and killed them. So he was very socially aware of society, just as Charles Dickens was. There were things there now that they couldn't do. <coughs> Did it change? Well, I chose this one to illustrate a change. <laughs> and this is by Lowry. The fever van. And I grew up in a street like this. Who oh, did you really? Yes. And, um, <laughs> and here's the fever van. And you should hear a pen, a pin drop when this came to the house because they came to collect a child with some terrible disease like uh, diphtheria or um, scarlet fever or something like that. And uh, the child would be taken off to the hospital. They very, very rarely came back again. They died in the hospital. And then they would uh, burn all the kids' toys and everything. And, fumigate the house. And this could be me then, it was, this is 1935, I was eight years old, I must have looked a bit like this, uh, and this is my auntie Clara. Uh, but this was, um, this was very true then, the fever band, and he's caught it. I must tell you another little anecdote about uh, Lowry. I've always had a love of art, and um, I, when I was a young medical student, I used to go to art classes on Friday night in Salford, and at Christmas, the teacher, there was only about 12, there was all sorts of different sorts of people. The teacher would be selected, would select an expert to come and look at our paintings to see if they're any good. And it was always a little bit embarrassing because he put the, anonymously put the painting out and the visitor, the distinguished visitor, would say, Oh, that's very interesting. Somebody would smile, you know. Well, he said, This is total rubbish, and somebody had almost burst into tears. Well, one occasion, uh, it was Lowry. And in 1952-3, he wasn't really very well known. And uh, when it was over, they all rushed off everybody because it was snowing and cold. It was just before Christmas. And I said to Larry, can I, can I give you a lift home, sir? He says, oh, do you know where I live? I said, what's that, sir? He says, Mottram. Well, Mottram's up on the moors. I mean, it, it's not the sort of place you want to go to. It's not as civilised. Anyway, so I said, oh, yes, I'll take you home. I took him home. And... Um, and I went, it was a, he lived with his mum. He was a very, very nice man, Larry. Very nice indeed. Everybody was messy, said he was wonderful. He turned down millions of honours, all sorts of orders and melic, knighthoods, God knows what. He wasn't that sort of person at all, he was very retiring. And I went to his house and he said, Would you like a cup of tea? So I said, All right. So he goes into the side room and I'm, he said, The kitchen's full of paintings, like this, all about this. Set. And I'm looking, he said, God, this is it. He said, Do you like those? I said, I do. He said, why don't you take a few? <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. I think if I had, this talk would be not being trans transmitted from the Seychelles. <laughs> <laughs> but things were beginning because this is the period in 1935 when we started vaccinating children. First of all for diphtheria and pertussis, then of course later MMR and so on. It's gone on 
And of course, the latest one now is for uh, human papillomavirus uh, to prevent carcinoma cervix, but you can vaccinate girls early on in life. This is a major change that's taken place. And when 1948 came along, we had the introduction of the National Health Service. And those of you who were alive then, I think there are a few of you who were alive This was very exciting, because now we were going to have a proper health service. Um, here's the doctor, you see. Um, he's got respect from the lady and the little boy and the dad. And uh, he's got all these attributes for you. Oh, gee, what's that now? Uh, all the attributes of his uh, previous uh, life, like his gun and his dogs, <coughs> in the country, x-ray machines and things. Doctors now had a great deal of respect. Actually, this is a bit ironic, because this painting is by Norman Rockwell, who was an American artist, and of course, the Americans have never had a National Health Service. Anyway, I'm just telling you that. Not political. Um, but things were, there still was a problem. See, this keeps happening. Medics think we've answered that problem. Now we can cure this, we can do this, and hit something else. And this is a problem which we've got now. Uh, and it's called The Glasgow Close by Joan Erdley, painted in 1960. Poverty, environmental problems. We've never really looked at this. Some of you will remember Sir Douglas Black. He wrote the Black Report on this in 1980. But Margaret Thatcher didn't like it, so it got published when the holidays were started. So it didn't get really circulated. But now the RCP in London has established uh, a committee to look at the social determinants of health because it is now recognised that poor environments do generate a great deal of illness. And you can't dismiss it very easily. If it were, so then it would have been done. And I've got a quotation here. This was from a news, BBC News online in 2008. I'm sure it's relevant now. A boy living in the deprived Glasgow suburb of Carlton will live on average 28 years less than a boy born in nearby affluent Lindsay. The average life expectation in London's wealthy Hampstead is 11 years longer than nearby St Pancras. Something is causing these things. Should we be looking at these things now, shouldn't we? Is it just smoking or drinking? It's so easy to say that, but we've got no proof. So here we are hitting another problem. And there, here's another problem. This is one of my favourites. It's called I Waxes and I Wanes, sir, 1944, by Mervyn Peake, who's a poet, a writer and an artist. I'll read you the poems he wrote to accompany the work of art. It says, I waxes and I wanes, sir, I ebbses and I flows. Some say it be me brain, sir, some say it be me nose. It isn't that I'm slow, sir, to cut a story long. It's just I'd love to know, sir, which one of them is wrong. Now, how many of you have been patients when they say, well, we're not certain if it's... The well, it could be. Look, don't you worry. Yes, OK. Well, <clears throat> you know, we do worry. We want to know. And we fit this problem in the 1940s and 50s. Then a major discovery took place. And you think you all know this now. 1953, DNA was discovered. And then, um, 50 years later, the whole DNA sequence uh, came into play. And this allowed people to investigate all these genetic, or 
inherited diseases, familiar diseases, for genetic defects. And this is and chromosome defects. This is going on now. This is an entirely new branch of medicine. And there's some very famous medical geneticists in the audience uh, who are studying these sort of things. And this is the, going to be the real breakthrough now with a group of diseases like muscular dystrophy, like many others though, why we've got, and of course, Alzheimer's disease, and of which some of us here have got special interest. Um, those sort of diseases are very important that we look at the genes and find that there's some way of treating them. This is going to be the next major step forward. But it leads to problems because nobody can understand this. Now, this is my ward in Edinburgh, where we <laughs> investigated patients with neuromuscular diseases. And it's, it's by a patient of mine, uh, Murray Todd, who was an RSA, very famous artist, and he did this at my clinic. This is me, smoking a pipe, having a pint, sitting here, <laughs> with a nice little heater here. But you see, if you look at it carefully, you can't see it at the back, I suppose, but uh, two boxes here, he's only legs to see how strong he is and people messing with him and the only people allowed to smoke uh, the doctors they go that way this is Murray himself he's, he's illustrating in a very laughable way a real problem with patients now they're overwhelmed you go to see the doctor and the doctor says well we think it's a deletion of chromosome 4q what does that mean does it mean anything to you then they try and explain a piece of paper well yes and then, of course, the worst things than that, people who have a CT scan. What does that mean? And they show you. Now, a modern artist, a Scottish artist, Kane Curry, had this in the exhibition in Edinburgh a couple of years ago. It's called The Three Oncologists. And when I was looking at the opening of the exhibition, and I was looking at this, Kane Curry came up to me. He's a working-class artist, and he tends to deal with social problems. So I was saying to him, I wonder what this social problem is. So he pointed out to me who the three oncologists are, the surgeon, he told me what his name was, the pathologist, he told me what he is, and he told me who the uh, geneticist is here, and I knew all three. So what's the significance of this? I, I'm damned if I could see it. But once he pointed it out to me, it was obvious. You see, it's as if they're on stage. They're famous, you see. Um, they just turn and say, look, don't bother us. We know what we're doing. Leave it to us. Now, if you think about it, he's caught that. Don't, we're not going to tell you. No, no, we're above all that. Well, this is the situation we're hitting now. A very major problem in medicine, not explaining to ordinary people, not people like us, we're educated. The ordinary person in the street, do they understand what's going on? How do you get around that? Well, people Google. And we had a meeting at the BMA last year where one of the topics to discuss was what you do if a patient comes to you and says, Doctor, I looked myself up on the Google and I don't have the disease you said. <laughs> and you've discussed this for about two hours, and the conclusion was very good. And one of the chaps there said, well, why don't we just tell people, if, if this happens, tell me what the website was, I'll have a look at it, and I'll see you next week. That's the way, to, not to argue with what they think they've translated from Google, but when you've seen it yourself. And another factor, this is a, a, an embroidery, it's called The Patient Researching Herself by Louise Riley. And she did this for the front page of Lancet a couple of years ago, illustrating that she is ill in hospital, but she's her own research topic. They're actually saying, well, we don't know yet, but we'll take some more blood from you, we'll boil it for another five minutes, or whatever. And 
they seem to be doing that. You've all experienced this, I'm sure, as you get older. You're the subject of research, which is very peculiar. Let's step forward a bit now. I put this together uh, a couple of years ago. It took me a lot of effort. These are major scientific um, discoveries and inventions. There was nothing from the 10th century when Razzis found that measles wanted to save a smallpox. And that was a major change, but nothing happened then until you start getting microscopes. Then look how it surged now. No wonder everybody's confused. Not just the patients, the doctors are. What's the difference between a CT and an MRI? Hands up, anybody knows? Yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you don't count me too. But that's what I mean. You see, most people wouldn't have a clue. And this is my last picture, because I want to uh, demonstrate you now some of the problems in modern medicine. And this is called The Children's Doctor by Andrew Wyeth, American painter, published, painted in 1949. It's of Margaret Handy. Margaret Handy was one of the very first women in America, Johns Hopkins, to qualify in paediatrics. And he's trying to indicate his son was also seriously ill in winter. Uh, here's the moon. So the doctor's going home at night with a bag. She's thoughtful. She looks kind. She doesn't look intimidating at all. And this led to the idea that really we should be thinking seriously about four things when we talk about doctors. We should be thinking about their competence, their caring, their compassion and commitment. It's not like science. You're dealing with living people. Competence, caring, compassion and commitment. And when I told this to a student in Edinburgh a few months ago, she said, and I'm cheerfulness. Yes. Who wants to go see a doctor? You know, <laughs> oh, God, I've never seen one of those before. You don't need that. You need them to smile and make you feel better. And I want to finish off with some... So, ideas I've got now about the future, because <clears throat> we really are entering a very, very difficult stage in medicine. Um, from my point of view, standing back and looking on a career in medicine, it really is terribly worrying. And I think Jeff Aronson's in the audience, I saw him coming in, so I'd better be careful what I say, because I don't know anything about pharmacology. But there are two major problems facing us. One is the pharmaceutical industry, and this is requiring enormous financial investments, much greater than we think from the press. Uh, at the present moment, and I hope, Jeff, you'll forgive me, is he there? Oh, he's gone to sleep, that's all right. Um, macular degeneration in the elderly. There are two drugs now being produced by the same company. One costs £50 to inject treatment, the other costs 1250 per injection. And the drug company is pushing like anything the one that costs 1250 But various surveys and studies in America and Europe have shown there's no difference between the two. Well, that's just an example. What's more serious in some ways is in clinical trials, the exclusion of the elderly. And it's only when you get elderly do you realise this is a problem. They give you drugs for one disease without realising when this was used on young people, it didn't have any serious effects, but in the elderly it does, like lowering your blood pressure, so you become faint and fall over and you can't drive. And this is a real problem now. They exclude the elderly, perhaps because they think, well, they won't be here much longer anyway. I don't know. And then the other problem is the secrecy. 
that they have about doing drug trials. And Kay and I have been to many meetings in muscular dystrophy when drug companies have told us about a drug. You get questions, they avoid telling you, they use all sorts of fictitious acronyms and so on. And I'll read you a poem I wrote about this. It's called Patents Galore. Is it going to be helpful this time, or confuse and tell us little, or, in a magic moment of truth, reveal the basis of the riddle? Alas, nothing of the medicine itself, only an obscure acronym or cipher, graphs and histograms and detailed stats, increasingly always to bewilder. It takes millions to develop, they cry, searching furiously for patents, evasing sorry, evincing paranoia is their image, but forgiven if it helps our patients. But we never know if they fail, because they fly off to other congregations with other products yet unknown to us, who continue in hope and expectation. So I think we have real problems now with the pharmaceutical industry, and as I said, I'm not qualified to comment on these things, but as an outsider, this seems to be something that we're going to have to deal with. The other is, the ageing population. Oh, we all say this, don't we? Yes, well, here's some figures. There are now as many people, more people, over 70 now than under 16. Just think about it. In another 10 or 20 years later, there are going to be people like me knocking about all over the place, falling over and asking for obscure treatments for diseases you've never heard of. Not children's diseases. And the other thing is now, which I think is even worse, the NHS, 80, um, NHS spending on an individual is 80% of it is in the last two months of your life. So it really is a major problem. And you care at the present moment ranks 12th out of 34 healthcare trusts in Europe. 12th. Why? Why aren't we doing better than that? Well, if you look at the data, those that are doing better all put more money into it. And that's, I think, what we're going to have to think about. I'm not a politician. I don't understand politics. And the more I listen to them, I understand less. But I think this is a really big problem now. How are we going to settle these problems? Rising cost of drugs and then over the population. So I'd like to complete by another quotation, this time from Professor Geoffrey Lloyd of Cambridge, Professor of Classics. And he said this, While most of the anatomical physiological and pathological doctrines in the Hippocratic writings have long since been superseded. But the ideal of the selfless, dedicated and compassionate doctor they present has lost none of its relevance in the present century. Thank you.